Good to go. Uh, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this time that you've given us to gather around the teaching of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, from the Scriptures. We thank you for giving us understanding of the truth of the gospel. And above all, we thank you for revealing Christ to us and saving us by his obedience. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for life and all the blessings that you've given us here and even more importantly, eternal blessings in Christ. I pray for ability to speak your truth faithfully. I pray for those in the hearing of the message to be given ears to hear. Otherwise, it's not productive, it's not helpful to them if the Holy Spirit does not make the word effectual to their ears and their spiritual eyes. We honor you, glorify you, and in all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning again, one and all, and everybody who may be joining us. This morning we are going to be in the Old Testament book of First Samuel. I think that we're going to do another message from the next chapter. That will be First Samuel 9. But from my cursory reading of it, it looks like I may do two messages from that chapter because there's a lot of wonderful things to share. But if not, and I get greedy, then we'll squeeze it all in one because the nuggets are going to become more and more. These are the very difficult parts of the book that we have already managed by God's grace to extract the gospel. But the nuggets are going to be flying like um, they may be overwhelming to some people, but we're not going to stop. <laughs> we're going to keep them coming. We're going to keep sharing the gospel of Christ. Because that is the excitement. This is what excites me. And anybody who is really about Christ, they get more excited when they hear more about Jesus. The preachers who spend much of their time preaching about you and what you have to do and are not doing, they never bring good news. They bring depressing conversations around a conversation where we're supposed to be very joyful. The gospel is the most joyful message that we should be hearing. You should always, when you leave this place, when you hear any of our messages, you should feel liberated. You should not feel condemned. If you are coming out of any message and you're feeling condemned, then you did not hear the gospel. That's just the easy way to listen to it. Okay? So we're going to be in First Samuel chapter 8, and we're going to work our way through the whole chapter, of course, with a lot of other things tied to it. And this is from the New King James and God recorded for us and said, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. 
But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Hear the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and, and captains over his fifties. Who will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks and bakers. And you will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you'll be his servants. And you cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. And that's the word of the Lord for a title. If three, heed their voice and make them a king. Heed their voice and make them a king. Number two is... Related to number three, Israel rejects God. Israel rejects God. I think the message you carry, the title, Israel demands a king. And we'll get to our message. In the previous chapter, chapter seven of First Samuel, God has defeated the Philistines on behalf of Israel. You're going to have to stick around because we have a wonderful message. You would not think there is a wonderful message from what we just read. We have some wonderful gospel testimony. 
So God has defeated the Philistines on behalf of Israel in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. And we worked the gospel testimony of that and made special connection to the confluence of events and how they were pointing to a particular work and time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the immediate background was that Samuel had gathered all Israel to Mizpah that he may pray for them on account of their expressed desire to repent towards God. So he told them to put away all their false gods, their idols, and then he said he was going to meet them all at Mizpah. He was going to meet all of them. Pay attention to that. At Mizpah, that he may pray for them to God. That he may intercede for them to God. But as they were gathered, the Philistines caught wind of it and determined to come and attack them. When Israel heard about the impending attack, they cried out to Samuel and said, Please pray to God for us. Cry out to God on our behalf that he may deliver us from the hands of the Philistines. But Samuel did not run and organize the army of Israel. So what you see here is when you're reading stories, there are things that are said, but also there are things that are obvious that are not said. Samuel did not scurry to gather the army of Israel together and ready them for war. He did not get his fighter jets, his tanks and rifles ready. Instead, he fought in a different and unusual way. He took a suckling lamb and offered it to God and made intercession. When the war drums were being beaten. Now, if you ask me, that is not how you're going to fight the Taliban or any terrorists or war. You're not going to be getting a lamb and offering it to God for your victory. The Taliban will come and overtake you before the lamb rust is done. But somehow, this worked for Samuel and Israel. But why did it work? Why did it work? Second Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not fleshly, but mighty in God. Or the NET will say, are made powerful by God for pulling down strongholds, tearing down strongholds, 
casting down arguments and every high thing or every lofty thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So in any situation, ultimately, everything has to be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ by faith or by force. So the weapons of God's warfare, which is our warfare, which is our own weapons, are not carnal. God does not need tanks and guns and jets to go to war. His weapons are mighty in himself. And the redeemed possess God's weapons of war. Christ himself is the man of war. And we possess him and he possesses us. The blood of the lamb is what is for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself, any kind of knowledge, understanding that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, as the Philistines were about to do. That's what the Philistines, they were coming against Israel. They were coming against God's people. So they had some charges. They had some arguments. The Philistines had some arguments to make against Israel of which they were convinced Israel was liable, Israel had wronged them. They had an axe to grind with the Israelites. And so they came to kill. But in their coming, but their coming coincided with the offering of the lamb and the intercession by Israel's high priest. I want you to see the connection of that. The coming of the Philistines to attack coincided with the offering of the lamb by Samuel, Israel's high priest. And that means this whole matter was a rehearsal of Christ's own intercession for his people at the cross on account of their sin. So what you see in the Old Testament telling of Christ, the Old Testament is a rehearsal of the person and work of Christ Jesus. And many preachers, unfortunately, they go and moralize those things. and They miss the point. The Philistines were there as a picture of sin and all that was opposed against God's people to accuse, to destroy, to condemn. But at the face of the sacrifice lamb, they were subdued, they were overcome, they were defeated. And that tells us that Samuel was in union with these people, Israel, as the high priest, 
before God. As the book of Hebrews says, the high priest was appointed for the people on behalf of the people to give gifts and sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And that means God made union of these people with the high priest and also with the lamp that was offered even as the Philistines were marching. Otherwise, the sacrifice would not have helped them. They had to be union with the people for whom the sacrifice was given in order for the sacrifice to be effectual to the salvation of those people represented. In other words, there's no representation without union. And that means there's no benefit of Christ to you or to anyone here and now if we were not already united to him in his death. And so when you read the New Testament, it says we were, we died with him, we buried with him, and we rose with him, we resurrected with him. And that means Christ united himself to all his people in his death on the cross. But our union with Christ does not and did not begin at faith, nor was it caused by faith. Many teach that. That's not true. The Holy Spirit is not given to begin our union with Christ. That is a missing of a lot of pieces in the gospel equation, in the gospel understanding. Our union with Christ began in election by grace. It came in the incarnation of Christ. That is why Christ had to pass through the human womb to complete his union with his people, to identify with his people. He also had to be carried in the womb for nine months. And then we had union with him on the cross, the resurrection. Even now, the Bible says we are seated with him in the heavenly places, that's union. That's the only way because we are here in Columbus. But God says we are seated with him. If we were not united in Christ in election before the foundation of the world, we could not participate in his death and be beneficiaries of his obedience. So this is the proper understanding of election. Election set the legal right for us to be counted as heirs with Christ in his last will and testament. That's what election did for us. It gave us the legal right to be partakers of the inheritance. And one, this something that you all know, one does not write the beneficiaries of their will when they are already in the casket. (laughs) 
after they already died, that's too late. The beneficiaries must be written before the testator dies. It is done before, and God did make us beneficiaries from before the foundation of the world, and at the death of Christ, the distribution clause of the last will and testament kicked in. Why? Because death is the trigger for the distribution of the benefits of the deceased. And that to say, Jesus had a life insurance on all the elect. Jesus took a life insurance of the elect that at his death, we were reconciled, we were justified, we made holy. All the blessings came to us. They came to us by only one reason, because we were chosen. Not because you stopped sinning. Not because you were baptized. Not because you started being a better person. That's false teaching. We have them because he died. And we have them because we were chosen. God was pleased to make us heirs with Christ. So Israel owed its victory over the Philistines not to their faith, not to their weapons, not to their obedience, but to the sacrifice that was given on their behalf, a sacrifice that God accepted. And that is say, we owe our victory over sin, our righteousness, not to our resolutions to fight the Philistines, not our resolutions to fight sin, but in God's acceptance of the work of his appointed high priest and sacrifice, and that is Christ Jesus. That's the simplicity of the gospel. It's all about Jesus. First Samuel 7, verse 18. First Samuel, verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So the Philistines were subdued on that day. And that is to say, the condemnation of sin was overcome on that day. And that means at the death of Christ, God justified his people because the Philistines were subdued. And the text says, the Philistines did not come anymore into the territory of Israel to fight them in all the days of Samuel. And that means sin cannot come into the New Testament to condemn God's people anymore in all the unending days of Christ because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The avenger of blood could not breach the boundaries of the city of refuge to try and get the person who was the manslayer once they got to the boundaries of the city of refuge, they stopped. That's where the condemnation stopped. The city of refuge was a picture of Christ, was a picture of the New Testament. And the Bible says, 
if anyone who had sought refuge in the city of refuge were to go to the mall to buy shoes because they won't sell, and they breached the boundaries of the city, and they were caught by the avenger of blood, they could be put to death. That to say, they should have remained in the city of refuge because only in Christ is there no condemnation for sinners like you and I. That's simple. But here, the main so-called sovereign preachers, sovereign grace preachers and reformed preachers talking about you and you keeping yourself saved. (laughs) Sin has no power to condemn those who are in Christ. Because the law, which was its power, was fulfilled for them and was set aside by Christ Jesus. And I say the Philistines were not defeated by Israel's obedience to God. And that to say, Sin is not afraid of your law-keeping. And this is a very important gospel point to make and for us to be reminded of or to appreciate. Sin does not care for your efforts to keep the law. It knows you have nothing to give the law apart from Christ. Sin knows that. And also, the law is not hesitant to come down on you because of your sin or your spirited attempts to keep it as Apostle Paul testified about his own experience with the law. When he found out by God's grace that it was lost and done in the face of the righteousness of Christ, Paul's law-keeping that at one time thought, at one time he thought was blameless. He found out when he came to the true knowledge of Christ that that was done. That was lost. He needed something better than his own obedience. He needed the righteousness of Christ. So even the smallest of sin will cause the law to bring condemnation no matter how seemingly small or acceptable the sin is, because many professing Christians have the tendency to define sin as something that they do not do anymore. As long as it is someone else doing it, then it's sin. But not them. Because they measure other people's sinning by their own standard of what they stop doing. And there lies the deception. Even the very acceptable sins are still sin as far as God is concerned. You do not have to be a hooker to be a sinner. Okay? The Pharisees, in their law-keeping, were worse sinners than hookers. You ask Jesus. They were worse sinners than hookers. The point is, The law's condemnation is only stopped, is only nullified, is only made void by God's appointed sacrifice 
Because Christ alone is he who was and is the propitiation, the satisfaction of our sin. Okay? But this is how far God has taken Israel. And there at Mizpah, Samuel erected a stone, a monument, and called the place Ebenezer, the place where they had defeated the Philistines with the lamb sacrifice. Ebenezer, the Lord who helps us. And this far, he has helped us to defeat the Philistines and their testimony against us. And that to say, Ebenezer is Christ Jesus. And Mizbah is a picture of the cross, is a picture of Calvary, because at Calvary is where the Philistines were defeated by the sacrifice. Christ, the rock of offense. Christ, the stone of stumbling. And by him, we have reached this far. This distance from sin and condemnation and death. This is how far we were. We were right in the depths of darkness. But this far we have come to light, to righteousness, to life. This far we have been called and are called the children of God. Holy and blameless and above reproach. How do you call Paul blameless? It's impossible. If I give him 2,000 years to live, he will always be blameful. <laughs> you always have a lot of things to do with. It doesn't matter how many years I give him to live. It doesn't matter how many times I tell him to repent. But God comes and says, he's holy, he's blameless, and he is above reproach. By him, by Christ, we have been given title and right to all of God's blessings. And this already happened It's not waiting for you to behave better. And so Ebenezer is not for people to use after they've finished remodeling their kitchen and bathroom and say, this far God has taken us. (laughs) The context is salvation. Because I mean, pay attention, people will be using it everywhere, just be throwing Ebenezer everywhere. But as I remarked in the previous message, God has more than a million sermons to preach on Christ. And Christ cannot be preached without bringing the law because the law is about what you do. That's what the law is about. The law is about you and I doing something. Whatever it is that we think we're going to present to God in exchange for eternal life, for blessing, and whatever good thing we may want from him. So the law is the background that God used in the conversation of the story of Christ. The Bible is a conversation about Christ. So, Instead of Israel maintaining this new status quo 
of freedom from the Philistines because remember, they've had a very peaceful time under Samuel. The Philistines have been defeated for them. Guess what Israel does? They are onto some new shenanigans because they were not satisfied with that gospel that gave them rest from the Philistines. Let us hear the text. First Samuel 8. And that to say, everything else was interaction. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. So Samuel was old and was coming to the end of his life. And he thought to appoint his two sons, Joel and Abijah, who were judges in Beersheba. But there was a problem of qualification. His two sons had the same problems as the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. They were sinners. <laughs> they were corrupt. They behaved more like the politicians in Washington, D.C. than as judges of the Most High God. They were after dishonest gain. They took bribes from the lobbies <laughs> and they perverted justice. So you see, what is happening in Washington is not a new story. It's an old, old story of corruption. So what was proposed to be done, verse 4 and 5, 1 Samuel 8, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and Ramah and said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. The elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel with a proposal. They said, look, you are advanced in years, and that means you will not be able to carry your duties any longer. And maybe soon you shall be joining the ancestors. <laughs> but we have a problem of succession. Your sons, whom we would have expected to take up after your, uh, to take up after you, are corrupt. They are not qualified to assume your office. Thus, we propose, make us a king to judge us, like all the nations around us. In other words, give us a job Biden. If you can't find Joe Biden, you go to beautiful Texas, get some George Bush or something. Get someone. Just give us a king. <laughs> we like better the template that the surrounding nations are using for their leadership. They have kings and we love the pomp and the fanfare and the pageantry that surrounds having a king. We love that. So cool. Verse 6. 
And someone said, oh, what a wonderful idea. Thank you, people. I did not think of that. <laughs> but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel was the least amused by this suggestion. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, verse 7, and the Lord said to Samuel, Hear the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. So Samuel praised God and God answered and said, These people did not reject you, so do not take it personal. They have rejected me that I should reign over them. And what is that? It is the rejection of Christ. And saying, we will not let this man to rule over us. Remember, Samuel was a type of Christ. He was a Nazarene. He was God's faithful high priest. So essentially, Israel has rejected Christ Jesus. And God then continued in verse 8 and said, According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. What is that saying? God is saying Israel was still in unbelief. All the miracles that they had seen God perform for them did not help them to have faith. Because you do not get faith from seeing miracles. Faith is given by the Holy Spirit. And in the previous chapter, they had come and said they had repented towards God and that they were missing God. Isn't, isn't that what they said to some of the like, we are missing God. <laughs> we have been repented of our sins. But sooner rather than later, they find themselves back to where they were before, back in the warm embrace of their idols. And that is with many people, when it comes to the gospel, they will talk about how they repented and stopped this sin and that all salvation is by Christ alone and by grace to some level. But wait a while, time will prove if their testimony will hold. Sooner than later, they will reject the same gospel and say, no, we have to be under the law. Or salvation is grace by plus works. Salvation is grace plus works. Or outright reject the gospel. I know people who have changed, even as I've been in Columbus, used to go to some decent church, somewhere close to downtown Columbus. And now they're back to Roman Catholicism. And this is not some uneducated person. This is someone who actually has a PhD in chemistry. Very sharp guy. And he cannot read the Bible 
to understand that salvation is by grace alone. You cannot read the Bible and see the problems with Mariology and all the issues with Roman Catholicism. He has gone back to that. And yet before he was, salvation is by grace alone. Intercession is by Christ alone. Now Mary is okay. Now the dead saints are okay. Verse 9. Now therefore, God says, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. God says, heed their voice and allow them to go ahead with their testimony. Give them what they want. But you shall warn them. And strongly so. And show them the behavior of the king who shall reign over them. Do you see where this is going? This is the New Testament teaching of Galatians and Hebrews. What was the issue that God presented to us through the Galatians teaching? It was the Judaizers trying to make a requirement of salvation of something other than grace alone. To create dissatisfaction with grace alone and to try and add something else to Christ. And for the Hebrews Christians, it was them entertaining, leaving Christ and going back to Moses. Not being satisfied with the sufficiency of Christ alone, of grace alone. And the Judaizers came and said, yes, Jesus, yes, the cross. Oh, we believe Jesus died on the cross. Yes, to the resurrection. Oh, we believe there's no Roman Catholic who denies the resurrection of Christ. Yes to Abraham. But you have to be circumcised. You have to add something. You have to be under the law to be complete before God, to be justified. And Paul came and said, that's another gospel. That's another gospel, which is no gospel, because there's only one gospel. He came and said, if you do that, you have been estranged from Christ. You have been separated from Christ. You have fallen from grace, Christ profits you nothing. Because by putting yourself under another king, you have rejected the kingship of Christ. If you put yourself under the law, you have rejected Christ, you have rejected God, you have rejected salvation, you have rejected God's grace. So, if they reject the kingship of grace, by which they fought the Philistines. They fought the Philistines and won them and, and, and defeated them, not by their doing, but by God's doing, by grace. What is left for them? Many who do not understand the law, nor the gospel would want to guilt trip us for saying the redeemed are not under the law. 
but they'll come, they'll come up with these very high sounding nothing arguments, sweet nothings, that we may wallow with them under the misery of their new king. Wallow under soul. Asking for a king was running away from the offense of Christ. From the offense of the cross which had given them victory over the Philistines. They want a king. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. So Samuel is preparing to give them a rundown of what life is going to be like under this new king that they have requested, and it is not going to be pretty. He says, second part of verse 11, this is what the king will do. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. Some will run before his chariots, so he will take your children and use them. Verse 12, he will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties and will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. So he will appoint some to be part of his military industrial complex. He will use them as instruments of building his own power over the people. Verse 13. You will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. You will take your daughters for his own use. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. So he will take the best of your labor and consume it. Verse 15. You will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. So he will take all your tithes and give it to his officers and servants and they will cease to enjoy their own tithes. Remember, the proper teaching on the tithes was that they were supposed to use their own tithes. They were supposed to consume whatever they had brought. And also the tithes were supposed to support the widow's and the orphans in their society. But now, all of it, we have to go to the new king. And what is that hinting here? It is telling us the theological identity of the new king. He's going to take your tithes. If he's taking the tithes, it means he is a picture of the law. And this is what he's going to do. Verse 16. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys and put them to his work. So all the things that you would have used for your own production to build some kind of wealth for yourself, he will now possess and use it for his own work. He is going to enrich himself at your expense. 
what is happening? God is saying that being under this king is going to make you very poor. It's going to make you a basket case. It's going to impoverish you. Because there's going to be a king who comes, who makes himself poor, that we may be made rich. So that's the distinction. There is a king in view, that is Christ, who is going to come, who is already rich. We do not make Christ rich. He is already rich. But he is going to make himself poor that we may be made rich towards God. That's the difference. So this new king that Israel is clamoring for is a picture of the law, and the law will impoverish you with respect to righteousness. Verse 17, you take a tenth of your ship, again, another testimony, and you will be his servants. So after having taken everything that you have, guess what? He's not stopping. He is going to enslave you. On top of taking all your possessions, he's also going to enslave you, make you his servants. And this is what you're going to do as a result of that. Verse 18. And you cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. So there's going to be a day of reckoning when you shall cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves because of the exploitation, because of the condemnation that's going to come from the king. God says it's coming on that day. In that day, it's coming. There is a day of reckoning to see that you asked for the wrong king. This is Egypt part two. The slight difference. This is what happened in Exodus 3. Let's go to Exodus 3, 7, and 8. Exodus 3, 7, and 8. Go say, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them for, to the, sorry. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. In Egypt, God says, you cried out because of Pharaoh. And I heard you. I came down and I delivered you. But this is the difference you did not choose Pharaoh. 
I imposed Pharaoh on you. And so I came and delivered you by way of the lamb. But this time around, you've chosen your own king to oppress you. And when this king begins to increase his burdens on you, you are going to squeal. You are going to cry out and I will not hear you and I will not deliver you. So I have made this very clear to you. But what did the people say in return? Did they say, oh, we are very sorry. We should not have asked for a king. Forgive us. We repent. No. Verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Having been given that list of things that the king was going to do to them, they refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, (laughs) no, 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 no. But we will have a king of us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. You see, this king has essentially taken the role and function that God used to be to them. So they said, no, like some toddlers. We've just learned that no is a very powerful word (laughs) to add to their vocabulary. Yeah, no, do this, no, no. So the people voted against their own interests. They voted against themselves. They want a king. They want someone to judge them, to go out before them and fight their battles and that to say God is not sufficient for them. This king will now do what God used to do and was supposed to be for them. This is what God was supposed to be doing for them. Verse 21. And Samuel had all the words of the people and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Hear their voice and make them a king. And someone said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city, get out of here. <laughs> you take your gospel out of this place. So the tables have been set. God is going to give them a king. And he has detailed to them the work of this king over them. Given them their life under this king. And it's not going to end well. It's not going to be pretty. And we can't just read this story and say, well, Israel was sinful. And we are doing better. By the way, please don't do what Israel did and go vote for Biden. Or for Trump. Or for DeSantis. Or whoever is running. That's not the point. God is not interested in the politics of the White House. He says all the kings of the earth are nothing. So that's not his interest. God is preaching the gospel. 
God is he who is behind the people's rejection of him. Because after this king is going to raise the man after his own heart, the real king, David. So this is setting the stage for David. Remember, Samuel was not a king. But he just, he just does not take us to David. He has to give us some more gospel testimony that will make us appreciate David more of our soul. Sinners cannot write a script for God. And that is to my point that they did not come up with this. This God working this thing in his sovereignty. God wrote the script to keep teaching the matter of law and gospel. Israel must experience this king for a gospel testimony of the work of the law. So what is that saying? It is saying that people will not be neutral or remain neutral after their rejection of Christ's rule, of God's gospel, of God's grace. You do not reject Christ and still be a free person. You are under law, whether you know it or not. Those are the only two states that one will ever exist in to be under law or under grace, but never under both. It's impossible to be under law and under grace. It's impossible to be under Christ and under Moses. It's impossible to be under the covenant of the New Testament, an unconditional covenant, and at the same time be under the covenant of the law, which is a conditional covenant. You cannot mix them. It's impossible to be on Mount Calvary and be on Mount Sinai. It does not work. Those who do not listen to us regularly do not appreciate the arguments that we are making. And so they will misconstrue what we are teaching to their own destruction. They will always, as they do, concord, force, fallacious conclusions. Whenever there is a clear distinction made between law and grace. Make the distinction. And you see them coming out of the woodwork. They will. Make the distinction. That I am not under law, I am under grace. I am under the kingship of Christ alone, and that's enough, and the trouble will come. And God is saying, if you reject the sufficiency of God's rule over you as a sinner, which is grace, because grace means God providing everything. That's what grace means. It's God doing. Grace is not just something open, empty something. No, it just means you are not doing it. It's God who is doing it. So because it's God's doing, it's grace. So if you reject the sufficiency of God's rule, which is grace, then you can only be under Saul as your king. And that means 
you'll be under the law. And the law will not bring blessing to you as many have been made to believe who say, oh, we are doing, doing the law because we love God. <laughs> Good luck with that. And God is saying, going back another law is a crime, actually a serious one. You see, in the writing of the text, God is not happy with that. Because it is a clear rejection of God. It is a clear rejection of the cross. A clear rejection of Christ. Because that is saying, you are going to try and please God by some other means, which is by your effort. And to many people who do not understand these things, as I said, when they hear this message, they have some frowning emoji. They're busy stopping their ears, thinking this is strange teaching. But this is the truth of the matter. And it's very consistent. God says, if you go back under the law as a rule of life, that's how it is phrased when they want to justify going under the rulership of King Saul. They'll say, oh, it's a rule of life. God says the law is going to strip you naked. It's going to put you back into the overdrive of works righteousness. It is going to put you back under bondage. It will bring you a lot of misery. It will impoverish you. It will leave you with only a filthy rag of righteousness. Why? Because it will take away from you, even the little that you thought you had, as Saul is said to do for Israel, it will make you a servant and will not and cannot make you a son. A son is only made through Christ. You only become a son, a child, through Christ, but never the law. Jesus taught that in the book of John. The servant does not remain in the house because they are a hired hand. It's only the son who remains. And the law belongs to that department that makes you a servant, but never a son. Okay? And God says there's a time that is coming when these who have rejected his testament of grace for law who come crying out for help. And that will be judgment day. These things, although happening in the life of Israel, is also looking forward into the future. And that will be judgment day and people coming and saying, Lord, Lord, did we not <laughs> give up our things in your name? Many wonderful things in your name because the feigned lawkeeper thinks they are doing their righteousness for God. And God says, no, that was not for me. That was for your other king. <laughs> it was not for me. What is the work of God? It is to believe in him whom he has sent. That is the work of God. That is Christ. And God said he will not hear their cries. He will not help them 
they will have to work with whatever this other king gave them. And if you think you're doing the law, then this is what will happen. So shall be your king. So shall be your savior. And that to say, so was the type of the law and the oppression that it brings. And that is God's point. And we shall keep developing Saul and the lost testimony around him. Okay? We're going to finish this in an elongated way. Last week, in the last message, we had some reference from Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to have to go there again to tie First Samuel 8 to the teaching of Paul in Galatians 5. To the matter of law and gospel. What does the gospel say? The gospel says, remain with Christ. Remain in the city of refuge. Abide in me. Remain in my teaching. Galatians 5, we'll begin at verse 5. Paul says, stand fast. Take your positions. Resist the Judaizers and their conditions of salvation. They are seemingly innocent additions to grace. Because when people are trying to get you out of the truth of Christ, especially the sufficiency of grace, they come and add good things. Like, oh, that's a good thing. So the good thing, it seems to them, is not adding to the offense, but it's actually taking away from the offense. And so Paul says, no, don't fall for it. Stand fast. And steadfast is a military term. And he says, stand fast. Dig your ground. Dig your heels into the ground. Refuse. Resist to join with those who are calling for you to have another king who is not Christ. To have soul. To have the law. Because the law keepers are always seeking to recruit. And to push over those who are of grace, who say grace alone is sufficient. Again, I'm going to say this. Did you see that God was upset with those who chose to go back under something that he said is not good for you? He says it is a rejection of his authority. A rejection of his faithfulness, of his provision, of his grace, of his own work. And saying we can get the very same thing, if not better, if we put ourselves under the law. And Paul says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. We have been made free in Christ. 
We do not need to be under Saul who will make us poor. Saul is not for freedom. That is clear from the text. Saul is not for freedom. So that has to be the testament of the law. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage, a yoke of slavery. Saul is bringing this to the people. Saul is nothing better than or more than a yoke of bondage. Israel under Pharaoh version 2.0. And Israel shall be entangled again under hardships. Under the power of Saul as they were in Egypt under the power of Pharaoh. Verse 2 of Galatians 5. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. If you get circumcised into this gospel of law-keeping as to demand another king apart from Christ, Christ will profit you zero, nothing. And when you cry to God for salvation in that day, Christ will profit you nothing. I will not hear you. Depart from me, you lawless ones. I never knew you. That's what you're going to hear from Christ. Verse 3. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Something that you never hear the law keepers say. If you put yourself under one commandment of the law, you have become a debtor to the whole thing because the law is a contract. You are bound by all the terms of that contract because it is a conditional covenant. You have to perform the contract. And whenever you have a contract, there are penalties to breaking the contract and there should be remedies. Unfortunately, because this is talking about perfection, there's no remedy that you and I could come up with. God has to provide the remedy through the perfection of Christ. So Paul says, if you put yourself under this law, you become a debtor to the whole thing. You are now responsible by yourself, Kathleen, to do everything that the law says to perfection. And God says, I will not take this hybrid system. You are not going to save me and Saul at the same time. It is a good compromise. After all, Saul is such a handsome looking king. You see, that's a deception. Saul was very handsome. He was tall, so he would have won the presidency of the United States. Like, like that. He's tall. He would fit exactly in what people are looking for in a president. Tall and some guy. And so was it. And it was, and it was and is that handsomeness, that beauty of the law that have people deceived. The guy is beautiful. He's handsome. And that is the problem. 
The law is good. It's righteous. And that's the problem. That's how people get deceived into it. God did not say, I'm going to repeat this. He didn't say, okay, you can serve both Saul and me together. He said, if you take Saul, you have rejected me. I am out. And that is say, Christ stands alone, or he is out of the conversation of your salvation. So what is the end of rejecting God? In other words, rejecting the gospel of grace. As sufficient in all things for the sinner. This is the point. This is just not a rejection of God. It's the rejection of the sufficiency of Christ alone. That's the issue. Israel still believed in the God of Israel as they, as he had revealed himself to them. But they rejected the sufficiency. The issue here underlined is sufficiency of Christ alone. You see, Israel was still engaged in a lot of religious activity. They were still observing the feasts. They were making the sacrifices. But God was not pleased with it. And that is say one can reject the gospel, but still be using a lot of gospel language, still be going to church every Sunday and midweek, reject the gospel and still be very religious, giving their tithes and offerings and doing their all-night prayers. That's just a cover-up for denial of the sufficiency of Christ. They will not be offended in the name of Jesus. A lot of these religious people are not offended by the name of Jesus. They are offended at his sufficiency alone. That's the issue. Which is the ultimate way to determine what people actually believe about salvation, what they believe the gospel to be. Is Christ alone sufficient for all things? Salvation for the sinner. So those who claim Saul, claim Moses, and say the moral law, say the moral law, that's usually how they put their arguments, but it is actually a denial of the gospel, the way that they phrase their arguments in an attempt to marry Jesus to Moses. So I'm going to work. Paul says, verse 4, Galatians 5, you've become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you've fallen from grace. Once you get back to the law to obtain anything for salvation, then you can't also claim Christ. You have fallen from standing in grace And that is not saying one has lost salvation. The elect do not lose salvation and cannot lose salvation. Salvation by design cannot be lost by those to whom God has granted it. Those of Christ do not fall from grace, but they are delivered 
from the false testimony of the Judaizers. And so God sent Paul to deliver the Galatians from the snare of the Judaizers. That's what Paul did. He came and he just brought the house down and said, no, this foolishness, it's not going to happen here. These are God's people. The Hebrews, the same story, when these people came and they're trying to get the redeemed back to Moses, the Holy Spirit came and said, no, this is not going to happen for God's people. But the ones who are non-elect, they're going to experience the gospel and all these things, but they remain under the falsehood of adding to Christ. So this a point that I'm going to make about the law. The law is an either or Situation. You score 100% or you score 0%. There's no 20% in law. There's no 80% score in law. There's no 99% in law. It's 100% or zero. I was telling a certain brother a few days ago that the law does not have a dimmer switch. You cannot dim the law to wherever you want. It is either on or off. It's one or zero. Okay? There's no mixing. There's no mixing. Anyone who is mixing law and grace is not telling the truth. So the believer is reminded of their rule of life and their hope. In verse 5 of Galatians 5, Paul says, For we through the Spirit, we, the redeemed, through the Spirit, not through the law. So that is a very purposeful statement. Paul is purposefully making the distinction that the redeemed are not under the law for their rule of life. We, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So the redeemed do not eagerly wait for Christ using the law, laboring under the law as their rule of life, but through faith. Through Christ, through grace, through the Holy Spirit, they await for the revelation of Christ and their life in him. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. In Christ, circumcision, uncircumcision means Nothing. It accomplishes nothing. But what is that actually saying? Paul is saying, your attempt to keep the law, your attempts to keep the law avail nothing with respect to righteousness. They mean nothing. Not in Christ. They mean nothing. They do not help your cause of salvation. For salvation is not determined by something that you do is determined by Christ. That is why it is in Christ. In Christ, all those things mean nothing. But faith working through love. So for your rule of life, it doesn't say, oh, you go back another law. It's faith. Faith in the revelation of Christ and the love that come with it. That's your rule of life. That's faith mutation. Verse 7, we're almost done. You ran well. Yes, you, Israel, 
under Samuel for the few decades that Samuel was the judge over Israel, you were running well. I defeated the Philistines for you by the blood of the Lamb. But question, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Yes, someone had to have come and messed you up with some false teaching to tell you that yes, you use the law for sanctification. Yes, there is still a third use of the law, they will say, or oh, there's a third use. And we will hide or package all that under the language of, oh, it is because the law is the moral law. That is how they will continue to bind the redeemed under the rulership of Saul. And if you disagree with us and our confessions, then you are an antinomian. You are an anti-law person. You see, Christians cannot be immoral people. They cannot be doing what the world is doing. They cannot have a pattern of sin, a life that is some unrepented sin. So the argument continues. And they can be moral by Christ and his spirit alone unless we put the moral law to it. So essentially, that is a denial of the sufficiency of Christ. And God says that is asking for another king because the Bible tells us that Christ is complete in himself. The Lord does not complete Christ. Christ is complete in himself and we are complete in him. So if you are in Christ, you have everything that you need. You don't need the law to be a moral being. You need Christ and the Holy Spirit to be a moral being. That's the argument. These guys, they misrepresent what we are saying because they want us to make look like we are a cult because they don't get it. Paul says, you were running well. Who hindered you from following the truth? So adding the law back to grace is actually being hindered from the truth. It is a denial of the sufficiency of God's grace, and it is being hindered from the truth. Verse 8 and 9, I believe those are the last two verses. Maybe if you can believe a preacher, we'll see. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. God says, this did not come from me. This did not come from Christ. did not come from the Holy Spirit. It has to be a teaching of the gospel haters. The devil is behind the teaching. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, many will minimize what is being said and say, But the law is in the Bible. The law is good. What could be bad or wrong in adding a little law to grace? What could be wrong with Saul seeing that he is such a wonderful, he is such a handsome guy? We still have the law and the sacrifices Israel is saying at that time. Saul could not be that bad. 
We still have the temple. We still have the sacrifices. After all, the law is holy and good, but Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It messes the whole gospel. Just a little bit of yeast raises the whole lump of dough to make bread. A seemingly small and insignificant influence produces a very big result. And many people do not pay attention to the small details of what people and preachers are saying. And so they will say, oh no, I've never heard him say that. And in that they're trying to defend their false favorite preacher or their favorite false preacher. It is because they're not paying attention and cannot reason the implications of what is being said or not being said. When someone makes a statement, there are implications that come out of that. So you have to reason the implication of what they're saying. And that is why you find these many preachers who sound on many good days like they're preaching sovereign grace salvation. Being given passes as authentic gospel preachers but they are full of little Judaizing details and influences. Works salvation. Adding seemingly good things to grace and preaching another gospel. But for the redeemed, this is the contrast. Verse 10, I have confidence in you, in the Lord. Not just confidence in you, for you, for your sake. No, I have confidence in you, in Christ that you have no other mind. You are fixed on the truth of Christ. Christ will not let you continue in that persuasion of law, of law plus grace, of going under soul. Christ will not leave you with that persuasion. But he who troubles you shall bear judgment, shall bear his judgment wherever he is. Those who have been deceiving the people, God says they're going to bear their own judgment. And the issue here is very simple. Adding to Christ. Adding to Christ. But those who have been deceived will come in their numbers and say, in 1 Samuel 8, 19, No, we will have a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want to be like other churches around us who keep collecting the tithes, who keep mixing law and grace. Because after all, the law is eternal. Oh, they love that. Oh, the law is eternal. And the issue is they absolutize the law over Christ. They make Christ subservient to the law and yet it is the very opposite. The law is subservient to Christ. Christ is God. The law is a list of commandments. God is more than a list of commandments. Okay? The law is a servant to Christ. So that's the distinction. We have made this point over and over. But God is not pleased with such testimony. 
because the inheritance of salvation is not of law, but of promise. The law is not of faith, and without faith it is impossible to please God. So be careful of who, of who you're asking to be your king. Be careful. Be listening. Make the distinctions. That's your burden. Pay close attention to what these preachers are saying about Christ because many are just giving you the testimony of King Saul. They say, look, he's so beautiful, he's so handsome. What could be wrong with him? God says, no, it's going to give you a lot of trouble. Anyway, we are done. God be praised. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this teaching. I pray that with as many words as have been spoken, that you give people the simplicity of it and that they cannot approach you by the works of the law. They cannot go back to the law. There's no hope for them. There's only misery. There's only enslavement. Their fight against the Philistines has been won and can only be won by the blood of the Lamb. And that is to say Christ alone is sufficient in himself. Grace alone is sufficient because there's nothing that can be added to perfection. We thank you, we honor you for all those who listen to this message. May you be with them in their going in and going out. May you bring us again to the teaching of God's gospel. We honor you, glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good people. Bye-bye. Have a good week ahead.